This is the Cricket Sadist Hour, sponsored by the human race, planet Earth's number one species. That is the name of the show. I am Jared Kimber, and usually this is the bit where I insult Andy Zoltan, but he's not here because we recorded two episodes in one by accident, or basically by Andy saying too many numbers. So there you go, I've still managed to insult him. So this is part two of our early World Cup special. Andy, for the next player, could you take me through the first international group game you ever went to? Jared's 1983 World Cup. I was uh, an eight-year-old boy growing up. I was three. On the mean streets of Tunbridge Wells. <laughs> Tunbridge Wells, for those who don't know it, is essentially the most Tory town in Britain, therefore the universe. And for some reason, it was given a World Cup match. Now, it's, it's hard to understand that now, but in 1983, they gave Tunbridge Wells, which essentially had a pavilion and some deck chairs. It got a World Cup match. Uh, in no, the 99 World Cup, India played South Africa in Hove, I think, which, again, was a, I mean, it's a, Bigger ground than Tom Ridge Wells. But. In 92 World Cup, would that, maybe they, even that Pakistan game might have been played in Ballarat. There was right. a game in Ballarat. <laughs> I'm just saying Ballarat. So those kind of long lost days of little towns hosting World Cup matches. India v Zimbabwe. I was obsessed with cricket. Got into it in 1981. India had been uh, tourists in England in 82 along with Pakistan. So I sort of followed that team. So they were, they were playing in Tunbridge Wells against Zimbabwe. Now Zimbabwe had beaten Australia in the opening game of the tournament. India, Too soon, Andy. India <laughs> had uh, beaten West Indies, but then lost a couple of games. And we need to see this in context of quite how appalling India had been at, at one-day international cricket. In the first two World Cups, they famously humiliated by England in the first ever World Cup match, 130 for three, chasing 330-odd in the first ever World Cup game, suggesting they hadn't entirely got to grips with the format. Next World Cup, they... They um, lost to Sri Lanka. They were the first yeah. test team to lose. And that's why Sri Lanka ended up getting test status, yeah? And so they came into the 83 World Cup. They'd had the worst record of the six test-playing nations between 79 and 82, not including Sri Lanka, who'd just become a test nation in 82. India had comfortably the worst record in one-day international cricket, had the least effective bowling attack, and the, the fifth out of sixth best batting lineup in ODI cricket in between the two World Cups. They'd only played six one-day internationals at home, ever. They played that many last week. Uh, yeah, so one day cricket just was, it just was barely registering in India, essentially. And against Zimbabwe, who had a very strong team, and certainly the strongest non-test playing team in Trey the world. Tracos, Fletcher. And so Tracos had played test cricket for South Africa in 1970. Yeah. Duncan Fletcher. Dave Houghton. Houghton, who became an outstanding test player. Andy Pycroft. Pycroft. Had, uh, Peter Rawson was a very good opening bowler. They Kevin Curran, the father of the... Oh, Kevin Curran, the Currans. The Currans. Graham Hick was in the squad, but didn't play. 17-year-old Graham Hick. It, it was it. They were good, and they were also a brilliant fielding team. Yeah. So they had, they, had some, they had some licks, as they would say. So India went into bat, and uh, they were a 9 for 4. Gavaskar got a duck, then 17 for 5. Kapildev came in at 9 for 4. He's batting at number 6. So basically, their World Cup was on the precipice of catastrophe. If they'd lost, they weren't necessarily out if they'd lost that, but they were almost certainly heading that way. Kapildev batting at six, 175 not out, of 138 delivery. He hit six sixes into Tunbridge Wells' famous rhododendrons. It is still comfortably the highest proportion of a team's runs. I think they end up 266 for eight from memory. I do have the internet. I could check. I that, but, yeah. <laughs> From memory, from from. Memory. But the point is, he got some. He got six. So it's still the highest percentage of runs by someone batting at six or lower in any one-day international okay. in a team's 
Not as sexy when you said six or lower, but that's fine. No, but it's still, uh, it was an impressive innings. Yeah. Unquestionably. And India defended that total and went on to win the World Cup. You could make an argument that it was one of the most influential single innings ever played. Because if he'd not succeeded, Ooh, and this, like was, this. this was his only one day international century. Yeah. In his entire He changed cricket by beating a non-test playing match. Yes. So when people go, oh, associates and minnow cricket, well, wait a minute. In this particular case, this was a team that it would take them almost another 10 years to get test status, yes. right? Had he not done what he did, today we'd be watching the Canadian Premier League not being the <laughs> Premier League. Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's what I'm saying. I think it, it was a hugely pivotal innings in the evolution of cricket because – I think India would have been knocked out. Had they lost that, had he, had he got out, then almost certainly India would lose that game. Zimbabwe had a decent batting lineup. They reached 200 on a few occasions in that. In that well, they, they kept over 200 against Australia, yeah. didn't they? They ended up 230 odd in that game in Tunbridge Wells, although my dad made me go home for supper at about 70 for three or something. But, um, I missed seeing Duncan Fletcher knock a few around. <laughs> um, and, and then India went on and won the tournament. And that kicked off the one-day cricket boom kicked in India. kicked off everything. It kicked off the world. And the next World Cup was in Asia and, and one-day cricket exploded. Mate, when, when I used to get, uh, I used to work part-time for a publisher and, and you get all these cricket books. Every third book was about Indian cricket, right? Because I did all the cricket stuff. And all of them were from 1983 onwards. It was like before 1983 did not exist. I've heard so much about that innings, and I've heard a lot about the, the catch, and we'll talk about the catch in a minute. What, what did he bowl like? Because I would have thought pretty handy conditions for him as a bowler. Yeah, so this, this was the interesting thing about that Indian team that won that tournament. In the, the whole tournament, so that's eight matches that they played, five wickets by spinners. Essentially, it was a, an attack of medium paces. Kapildev uh, himself, you know, he was a bit quicker than that at the time. Now, just incidentally on that innings in Tunbridge Wells, he scored 175 off... 23 overs, 138 balls. The rest of India managed 79 for 8 off 37 overs. But that in uh, it was 266 for 8. Uh, it's still the highest score by anyone batting 5 or lower in one-day international cricket. And they've now played almost 4,000 more one-day internationals since then. He added 188 runs with Madden Lal and Saeed Kirmani for the 8th uh, and ninth wickets. Uh, it's still the second most runs added after the fall of the 7th wicket in a one-day international innings. Funny stats fans out there. But how did he bowl? How did he bowl? Sorry, you did ask about bowling, but uh, I got distracted by his wonderful batting. In the tournament, 12 wickets, average 20, economy rate 2.9. And you look at the rest of that Indian bowling attack, Madden Lal, 17 wickets, average 16. Roger Binney, 18 wickets, average 18. Balwinder Sandhu, 8 wickets, uh, average 37, but a tidy economy rate, 3.5. Mahinda Amanath, 8 wickets in the tournament, average 22. But five of those were in the semi-final and final. And he did not take another one-day international wicket for over 18 months after taking five in the semi-final and final of a World Cup combined. So the final, so they didn't set many, did they? 180? 181. 181. And, and Should we get Ka- a scorecard up for that? Why not? And, and Kapildev slogged a couple at the end. Yeah, he got a 15 off eight. So, it, yeah, 183 all out. If I remember correctly, West Indies were 51 for two. Well, they were 50 for one when Desmond Haynes oh, okay, that's close. was out. Viv then looked like he was winning the game, having... Scored a famous century in the 1979 World Cup final. Oh, you could say still peak Viv, which was, he was pretty much in the middle of peak Viv in 1983, was 
probably the best one-day batsman of all time. You don't even need to say peak, Viv. I think if, even if you look at the bits of his career where he wasn't as good, I still think pound for pound he's the best one-day batsman there has ever been. Yeah. And he was so much better than everyone else in his era at runs and strike rate. Yes. So there have been players who have been better on strike rate and there have been players who have been better on runs, but he did both. From 76 to 86, he averaged just under 6, I think it was about 58, strike rate of 90. And only one player was anywhere near him on both of those counts. That was Zahir Abbas, a tremendous one-day player, averaged, uh, I think, 47, strike rate, 84. But in terms of average, the next best average was 48. Ten, ten runs below him, that was Ian Chappell. And uh, apart from Kapil Devon, Lance Gaines, who had down the order and had sort of low averages, no one was near Viv on strike rate. He was playing a pretty much a different sport to every other one-day international cricketer. Uh, in the final at Lords, he was bowled a ball by... Was it Maiden Lal? Yeah. Maiden Lal, who basically ran in quicker than he bowled. <laughs> yes, he did. And what was interesting about that Indian bowling attack, just gave some of their stats, every single one of the Indian bowling attack significantly outperformed their career stats. They'd all been averaging over 30, in some cases well over 30, before the tournament. They come in and all of them, apart from Sandhu, averaged you know, low 20s or in the teens. It was an extraordinary little outburst of brilliance from Indian uh, trundlers. Viv Richards in the final, 33 off 27 balls, and Madan Lal bowled in this ball. He hoofs it over the leg side. Kapildev running back. He's in the circle, isn't he? Over his shoulder. Yeah. It's not as brilliant a catch when we look at modern cricket. No. But considering that running back over your shoulder wasn't that common at that time... The pressure because of who had yes. the top edge I mean, of the that, ball. You've you got to factor that. And he had, what, a few, three, four seconds, I think? Yeah. This is Viv Richards I've got to catch here. And at World Cup final, you know, there are some times when you go back and you see, you know, Ali versus Liston or whatever, and you're like, wow, that's a that's a moment. And then sometimes you go back and you're just like, oh, that's uh, so much. Uh, this one is a bit more like that. But when you factor in all the actual extra details around it, and the athleticism. It wasn't like Indian fielders in general were running back over their shoulder in 1983. I mean, they weren't doing that in 2011 <laughs> that much. Would Verinder Sawag have taken that catch at any point in his career? <laughs> no. Oh, he wouldn't have dropped it, though, because he wouldn't, wouldn't have, have got there <laughs> within 20 yards of it. <laughs> so he bowled really well and was a brilliant bowler in that series, and yet is remembered for these two other random things, which is, you know, I suppose being an all-rounder, to be fair. But And he was he was captain, of course, as well in that uh, He did okay. In that tournament. So he did he did pretty... And in the final, one for 21, off 11. So... Handy. Old-school old bowling, uh, bowling figures. And that was the last game of 60-over one-day international cricket ever played. Hi. I'm the legendary Golden Age Australian batting genius, Victor Trumper, and you're listening to the Cricket Sadist Hour. Sorry, that's wrong. I'm not Victor Trumper, but you are listening to the Cricket Slatest Hour. My mistake. All right, let's fast forward a little bit to 2003. So 2003, Australia don't lose the game, and they are seen as this invincible force. But I want to talk about Michael Bevan because he was one of the most important one-day players of all time, but, but also because I think that World Cup is slightly misremembered because Australia didn't end up losing a game, whereas actually... They were in trouble against Pakistan in one of the early games when Andrew Simons basically blossomed into the Andrew Simons that we all... Oh, I've always thought of Andrew Simons as a as a blossom. <laughs> uh, Kent's own Andrew Simons. So they got away with that game, and then it was Michael Bevan that actually did something. By the time they got to the finals, they didn't really need Michael Bevan. 
But to get there, um, he he was much more important. For those who don't know much about Michael Bevan, very similar player in many ways to Emma Stoney. He's almost, if you think about it, a mix of Arjuna Ronatunga and Emma Stoney. Yes, but in terms of the the evolution of the one day batsman, yeah, one day finisher. In that, very hard to stop him from scoring. He liked to take the game very deep. He used the bat face in a way that no one had ever really thought about before, which you now see people like, you know, when Virat Kohli started hitting the ball through backward point when people would bowl wide to him, Bevan was doing those sorts of things in the mid-90s when people weren't even thinking about it as a tactic. Incredible runner between the wickets. He might have been the quickest player between the wickets in the 90s. Brilliant placer of the ball. Premeditated batsman. Quite often would think, this is where I'm going to hit my singles. This is where I'm going to hit my twos. This is where I'm going to hit my boundaries. He had an almost mechanical mind. He was the first ever finisher. We didn't even have the phrase finisher or closer before him. And and it was invented for him because he did it so many times. There's that famous one day game where he hits a boundary off the last ball to win the game for Australia. When I think they were about seven for 74, chasing 173. And he got them home off the last ball with a four off Roger Harper in one of the seven games Roger Harper was allowed to bowl. And I think he's got the fourth highest ODI batting average of all time. And one of the players above him is Ryan Tendiscata, who, you know, no, no slight off him because I think he would have been a top level international player as well. But a lot of his runs come against you and me. <laughs> I don't know how many times he played Guernsey. Do you want a quick fact? Is that about Michael on, Bevan? On associate cricket, which I discovered the other day. I'll do yeah. some research for the World Cup program. Mohammed Nabi of Afghanistan has played for Afghanistan against 45 different countries. Is that the record? I assume it's the record. If it's because not, I can't imagine anyone be. else has gone through the ranks in the way that Afghanistan has. He first played for them in 2003 against a Pakistan provincial side. But in terms of other national cricket sides, he's played against 45 countries, ranging from India to Iran. He's played against Argentina. He's played against Jersey. Played against Burundi, I think. I remember uh, Bhutan, that game. certainly. Oh, he smashed Bhutan. <laughs> Absolutely destroyed. Played against Utah. now all the all the top country world. Anyway, I digress. I mean, nothing explains Michael Bevan more uh, <laughs> than, than Muhammad Nabi. But yeah, so essentially, he had this mechanical mind. His game was very organised. He didn't have the power of Doni, did he? Didn't have Certainly, no. Doni brought the power. He could hit boundaries when he wanted to, and he, he made one very big innings for maybe the World Eleven. Might have made 170 or 180. So occasionally he could go to that level. But no, Doni was the next evolution beyond Bevan, really. What's interesting that the two have in common is that they both have significantly lower strike rates in chases than in first innings. Well, that's what I was going to say. So he basically worked out how to chase, and they both come up with this same theory, which is take the game as long as possible, and anything will happen at the end. And obviously we're now seeing the way that teams play. That's maybe And teams attack more with the ball now. So it's not as foolproof as a plan as when Doni was doing it his best, but even more so with Bevan. I think teams would allow Bevan to play the way he wanted, and he'd just get, get them home, as long as there was someone at the other end. So... In this particular World Cup, uh, the first game was against England. I was staying in a hostel in London at the time. We were in Shepherd's Bush, so there were Aussies everywhere, and I went to, I think, Belushi's in Shepherd's Bush. I don't know why the detail matters, but it was a terrible bar in London, and we were watching this game, and England made 208, you know, struggled a bit, and Australia were 135 for eight in response. 
And I want, it I was want to talk not, about this. It was not a good pub to be in. I tell you what, there, there was a few Aussies there. The Aussies were depressed. The English who were cock-a-hoop. I think as the game went more towards England, English fans turned up in, in what was seen as an Aussie bar just to have a go. And Bevan ends up on 74. Andy Bickle helped him out. And Australia obviously chased down the total. Do you remember any of that, Andy? Well, I, do, I didn't actually see very much of that World Cup because I, I didn't have the... Uh satellite channel that it was broadcast oh, on. And hello. I think it, there was virtually none of it on uh, terrestrial television. And also English one-day cricket at that point. It was not particularly <laughs> worth going to the pub to watch. But they should have won that game. England should have won that game. Yeah. And Bevan, that was almost Bevan at his absolute best because he was scoring quite easily, but also taking the game as deep as he needed it to be taken. So as you said, they were chasing 205 to win. Bevan was, 70, 208. They scored 208. The target was 205. They ended up 208 for eight. So England 204 for eight. Freddie Flint off 45 off at 80 different times. <laughs> um, Bevan ended up 74 of 126 and they won with two balls to spare. So in terms, you, you see that, that the calculations of how to just achieve the end goal of winning, you can see in innings like that. Yeah. So he mostly, I'm trying to remember correctly. Um, I can't remember if it was in his mind. He always tried to keep the chase at under a runner ball, but it didn't matter if it got to a runner ball. So if it got to about six and over and he thought it was going, he, he would hit a couple of boundaries to keep it roughly around that. But at the time, chasing a runner ball was not seen as easy. I mean, even now, I suppose, for all this talk about how 300 is par and everything, most teams don't make 300. So 300 is not par. So you can understand why that was a little bit tricky. The thing is, Andy, then the next game, Andy, not the next game, actually, they played Sri Lanka in the next game in Centurion. The following game, uh, they went to Port Elizabeth to play New Zealand, and New Zealand had them 84 for 7. So again, you're talking about a team who didn't lose uh, a single World Cup game, but it wasn't like they were dominating teams. 84 for 7, Bevan makes 56, Andy Bickle, who chipped in against England, he took seven for 20 against England with the ball as yeah, well. Yeah, but with the bat, he chipped yeah. in. Oh, he had an incredible... He wasn't supposed to be in the, in the team. Gillespie was supposed to play, and suddenly Bickle got to go. He made 64, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, Brett Lee might have come in and slapped a couple of Lee hit two sixes and a six-ball 15 at the end to get them up to 208 for nine. One really big hit, I remember. Shane Bond, six for 23. He was incredible. Incredible. Um, a bowler. The pace that he... In that tournament... He was almost as good a one-day bowler as I've ever seen because it was pace, accuracy, he was moving the ball around. So they end up making 208 and uh, bowled out New Zealand for 112. So Bevan twice, just through, and, and that innings, I'm assuming him a strike rate again wouldn't have been over 75. It was 56 off 94, so just under a stri- uh, 60 strike rate. Brett Lee, 5 for 42, so that was some pretty tidy pace. It was a good, down in that good game. game. So um, Bevan was one of the first true ODI greats. Average 29 in test cricket off the top of my head. Does have a 10-wicket haul, though, for his left arm wrist spit. Yeah. Uh, funnily enough, the Chuck Fleetwood Smith of his time. <laughs> but he never quite made it. But he was just so – he placed the ball so well and was so calm. And, you know, in that series, maybe Australia go on to win the World Cup anyway. But they did have four moments – when they really, really struggled to bat. And in two of those, Bevan was just, he was, he was his own peak Bevan. I mean, what the average in one day cricket must have been 54? F- 53. Oh, get out of town. <laughs> I've been out of town quite a lot recently, Jared. I've only just got back into town. But if you look at his scores through his career, uh, unbelievably consistent and not, not that many massive innings. No. Just constant productivity. 
and management of uh, an innings, whether it was the first innings or the chase. I mean, we talked before about how one-day cricket sort of began in in 92, but the the next generation that he sort of excelled in, he was two, three years ahead of where everyone else was. And suddenly, like, everyone had a Michael Bevan, do you remember? Like, Russell Arnold was Michael Bevan, and Chris Harris was Michael Bevan, and Neil Fairbrother was Michael Bevan, but none of them were actually that similar. Fairbrother was before Bevan. Oh, no, no, who was the... I wasn't Fairbrother, I was thinking about it. Thought was a bit, I thought England no, had thought a, before. didn't England have a couple of guys that were like finisher adjacent? <laughs> they, the only problem for the England players was they were never close enough to actually finish a game. <laughs> yeah, we need to concentrate more on the starters and the middlers. <laughs> it's not very well having a finisher if you're Australia and you have something to finish. And as we look down the scorecard, uh, we see the cricket sadist hour, caught uh, Zaltzman, Bold Kimber, Nort. Uh, another disappointing effort. Maybe the most dramatic change in one-day cricket happened through two openers. Stanis Jayasuriya, uh, sometimes politician, sometimes uh, you can find him on certain websites uh, in slightly less clothes <laughs> than, than he's more, more famous than. No, I didn't know that. Ramesh Kalawitharana, who, as far as I'm aware, is not on those sites, uh, but also did not go on to have the political or cricket career that Sanath Jansari did. But they were known as, what, Sanath and Kalu, I think, back in the day when they opened the batting and they did crazy things. They did crazy things. And they, I think, illustrate the dangers of seeing cricket stats out of context. Because when you look at the 1996 World Cup and Sri Lanka's triumph in it, it would appear they had almost nothing to do with it. Because Sri Lanka had the ninth highest averaging opening partnership of the 12 teams in that tournament. And in fact, their, their all-round stats weren't great. Their bowling attack wasn't particularly good. Their highest wicket taker only had seven in the tournament. They did have Aravinda de Silva. They had the best communal batting average. Yeah. But actually, that's despite the performances of Jaisaria and Kalawitharana. But that said, it was, it was the impact of how they played and just a couple of partnerships that they had in the group stage in particular. I guess changed the perception of what was possible at the top of a one day innings. We talked about great batch in the 92 World Cup. Didn't do anything quite as extravagant no. as, uh, as Sri Lanka. So against India in a group match, they hit 42 off the first three overs. Um, now, Ramesh Kalawitharana. Just, just to remind people, Gavaskar once faced 116 balls, didn't he? And <laughs> Gavaskar, the first World Cup match, 37 off 174. You'll also get an 85 ball century in a World Cup match back in, in 1987. I'm just pointing these things out. Which is not talked about as much as his 36 off 174. Rightfully. <laughs> understandably. So Kalawitharana, in the whole tournament, scored 73 runs. Yeah. In six innings. Coming into the tournament, they were both averaging under 20 in one day international cricket. And Jai Suri had been playing for, for years. He'd been playing, he'd made his debut in 1989. So Kalu had, they both opened the batting against Australia in the series directly before that. And they, even though I don't think they won many games against Australia, you could see that it was something going on. But it was quite clear that Kalu was not the player that Sanath was. But the fact that they were both thrashing in the same way. So I mentioned their run. Kalu got 73 in six innings, but off 52 balls, strike rate of 140. And he had 73 in the tournament, but off 52 balls, strike rate of 140. He began the tournament with a, a first ball duck, very fast scoring duck, the fastest scoring duck you can get without not facing. <laughs> um, then 26 off 16 against India with six fours, 33 off 18 against Kenya, then eight off three against England. <laughs> he was... Uh, Fit his first two balls for four and then was bowled off the third delivery he faced. 
Then in the semi-final, and this is one of my favourite moments in cricket, the start of the semi-final against India in Kolkata, the game that ended up with the Indian fans lighting fires in the stands and the game being abandoned. But at the end of the first over, both Sri Lankan openers were back in the hutch, caught at third man. And that was simply not supposed to happen in cricket. You know, to, to have an opener caught at third man at any point would have been considered very much the wrong way to open Once is careless. Yeah, but to do so twice in the first over of a World Cup semi-final was utterly extraordinary. And it showed the attitude, the change in attitude, that it was worth it. It was worth the risk to have both of your openers, not just one, not one opener having a go and, and a mm. steady player, but both openers just absolutely going hell for leather. Beneath that, they had Aravinda da Silva, who was batting like a genius. It should be pointed out that it, we don't talk about him enough anymore, but what a batsman he was. I remember he went to New Zealand once for a test series, and no one in Sri Lanka looked like they even wanted to go to New Zealand, and he was remarkable then, and just an absolute player. And so to have him at three, and Arjuna... He was at four. Oh, who was at three? Uh, oh, Gurusinga, sorry. Who had uh, Ranatunga at five. Uh, yeah, so Mahanama, Ranatunga, this was the, se- the semi-final lineup against yep. India. In fact, Gurusinga was out for one as well. But Aravinda came in, in this first over, two down for one, with both openers out, caught at third man, and Aravinda hit 66 off 47 balls. So there was no thought of consolidation. It was a completely different way of going about a one-day innings. He hit 14 boundaries in 47 balls. And it was, at, I think, my favourite innings of 66 in the entire history of cricket. Very much like Jai Saria's innings of one off three caught a third man and Kalu's naught off one caught a third man. My favourite innings of naught and one. So Kalu didn't make a lot of runs in that series, even if he made a big impact. But what about Sanath? Did better. Jai Saria had 221 runs. Average 36, strike rate 131. I mean, that's ridiculous for that era. We talked about Cluzden doing that in three years' time. So, A, Cluzden's got three more years to do it. Also, he's batting in the last 15 overs. Yeah. Completely different than than Senna. Aravinda, 448 runs, average 89, strike rate 107. And Ranatunga, you don't think of as a dominating player, 241 runs, only out twice, strike rate. 114. Bit of an odd tournament. They had a couple of games that, that didn't take place in the group stage because uh, teams did not want to go to Sri Lanka for security reasons. But Aravinda it then made a 100 against Australia in the final, became the first player to make a 50 and a 100 in the semi-final and final of a World Cup tournament. Yeah, I and mean... only Steve Smith has done so since. The middle order doesn't get as much credit as it should because... Certainly Aravinda, Gurusinga was quite a good player as well. They had 300 runs, average 50 in the tournament. And in the whole period too, not just in that tournament, they had a lot of good players like Hashan Tilakratni, Russell Arnold, guys who were maybe not always great test players, but they understood their role in one-day cricket and did really well. But the, the only thing I would say is that what the openers did was basically change the way that the game was played. Yes. And as much as anything, it was the bit beforehand as well. It was a bit against Australia that started it. Then they won the World Cup. And Sanath continued to do it no matter who was at the other end. Yeah. And also we need to see it in the context of Sri Lanka in World Cup cricket. Up to then, they'd played all five World Cups and been knocked out in the group stage five times. In between the 92 and the 96 World Cup, they had the sixth best win-loss ratio. So they're getting slightly better, but they were still by no means one of the top sides. And then they won all six of their games in 96, playing this, I don't know, they, they had home advantage uh, in 
playing at home in Sri Lanka. And, you know, the, the final was... So they played India in uh, Calcutta. Was the final not in Pakistan? I think it was. Yeah. But you also have to think about... We're talking about Sri Lanka right now like they're a normal team as well. They weren't a normal team. They were an associate nation who wins one game at a World Cup and gets themselves test status. They weren't even part of cricket's conversation. We now talk about them like they're a normal major team. But up until they won that World Cup, they were not thought of as anything. Yeah. I remember them coming to Australia before that World Cup and they were laughed at when they came out. It was just like, why is this team coming out? What's the point of this team? Kalu made a 50 in a test match. Ponting, I think, made a 50 and... Boone might have made 100. And I was talking to some friends and uh, Kalu's innings was just like nothing else I've ever seen because he was kind of batting like he didn't, you know, he just hit the ball so cleanly and like he had no idea and uh, he had no idea and no fear. I, I think is maybe the best way of explaining him. And so they just weren't like other teams. They were seen as an associate with no one took them seriously. And then suddenly they won that World Cup. And from that moment on, they're just like, Ding, 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 a proper team. And it's a bit like New Zealand up until the 80s, realistically. Up until the 80s, New Zealand, no one ever took New Zealand seriously or really talked about New Zealand. They didn't really do much. They they won their second ever test series in 79. You know, now we think of them as a normal team. But for like 50 years, you know, banter fodder. Yeah, well, Australia didn't play them for... Well, three over three decades, wasn't it? After that one test, rightfully after the war, um, so Sri Lanka in '96 collectively averaged 56 runs per wicket with the bat, um, which was by far the highest by any team in, in a World Cup. But they averaged 34 with the ball, and that gave them the eighth best collective bowling average. I'm, I'm including extras and runouts here, but so but runs per wicket as a bowling team, the eighth best out of the yeah. the teams in that tournament. So this this was a, a victory founded on on this new approach to batting. Yeah, and also they they gave themselves that ability because Silva and Sanath Jayasuriya could bowl as near... A, well, Sanath was basically a frontline bowler at times. I wouldn't quite say that about De Silva, but they gave themselves the ability to bat a little bit deeper. Weirdly, they didn't need it because they never lost any wickets other than Callow's wicket, which didn't count. They weren't even counting it. Well, yeah, I mean, between them in the semi-final and final, I think they managed 16 runs. So, uh, and yet the tournament they won, we think we think of it as their. But, as but their I tournament. mean, it was the big bang, wasn't it? You yeah. you had people like Junior Ninja Murray as a pinch hitting opening batsman. After that, uh, Ian Healy did it. Yeah. Ian Bell for England in 2015 <laughs> took England a while to to notice that, despite being on the receiving end of. Jaisaria in one of the World Cup games in '96. It's taken basically nearly 20 years to pick up on the hint. Yeah, and at that point, almost everything in one-day cricket had been led by either Australia or West Indies, really. And a lot of that was based on well, for West Indies, it was based. I don't think they thought about. Uh, oh, actually, no, they did have good one-day tactics. To be fair to them, they were quite clever as well. And Australia probably took it to another level with their organisation and everything as well. But. Sri Lanka were the first team to sort of radically change it from outside of the two major, smarter, better nations. Yeah, and just more on their their bowl. They're the only team that's won a World Cup with a more than 30 runs per wicket in the field. Really? Yeah. If I remember correctly, it was a very high-scoring World Cup, wasn't it? A lot of teams made a lot of runs. I think the run rate and the batting average was far higher than the tournament after it, which is not usually the case of the World Cups. Yeah, the batsmen collectively in 1996 averaged fractionally over 30. That's basically the same as 87, which was a you know, one-tenth of a run higher uh, in terms of strike rate batsmen 
hitting at 72 in that World Cup. Again, slightly below 87, but well above the, the World Cups either side of it. So 92 collective batting strike was 66. In 99, it was down to just under 65. And then in the World Cup since then, 72, 75, 78, 88 in, in 2015. So it was much more of a batsman's World Cup. And again, I, I think 99 was a bit of an outlier in the... Yeah. Just played from mid-May through June in England with Duke balls. England and Scotland. Yeah, England and Scotland and Holland and Ireland and Wales. Wales, Wales as well, yeah. <laughs> so there was one game in Holland, I think. And the ball swat, swang a lot. But clearly this was... Again, I mean, it seems that each World Cup has a bit of a shift. Uh, mm. But this, this did seem like a, a, a major change in the way one-day cricket was played. Well, we know it was, um, and we've already talked about, you know, Gilchrist and batting in wicket-keeping was already changing before Gilchrist. You could make a slight argument that Great Batch put a bit of a ding in it, but after Great Batch, it wasn't... We, we got a lot more pinch hitters. We didn't really get a lot more really attacking opening batsmen, whereas after Sanath and Kalu came through, uh, almost everyone tried to pick. And up, and up until Ian Bell in 2015, everyone basically tried to whack the ball everywhere. We're in full World Cup swing. Of course, the next podcast will be post-World Cup. We'll be in full global T20 swing. We'll be in Canada for that, uh, you and I. Antarctica. Is, is that where it it's is? The new ice, ice Cricket World Cup. Ice, the Ice Cricket World Cup. We'll be there. We'll be everywhere. So please share and subscribe and do all the nice things that you do to the podcast, Andy. Yes, I, 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 heartily, I heartily second that. And uh, thanks, Peter Stats. Mm-hmm.